Well, good morning, Second Service. So glad that you're here with us this morning. Uh, so excited that you're here with us because here at Oakwood, we are a church that is growing to know, love, and live Jesus. And so uh, we're glad that you're on that journey with us as we all are drawn into Christ Jesus together. Uh, today's a very special day because there's a, there's a game later today. Does anybody know about that? Super Bowl? Yeah. So I brought my, my, Chiefs, my Chiefs mug out here uh, to be a part of that. Now, as a pastor, uh, there's several things that I'm, I'm asked to do. You know, sometimes I get some really weird requests and, um, you know, different, different things. And so uh, one of those things that I have to do sometimes is, is uh, I've been asked to be like a prophet. And like to, to, to give a prophecy. And so I had a couple emails this week about, you know, would you, would you kind of give us a prophetic utterance of the Super Bowl? And so I did. I did and I like I, I laid out before God. I got on my face this week. And uh, God, I, I just asked God, you know, there's several things about the Super Bowl. And one of them is, you know, is, is there any Swifties in here? Good. We know better than to raise our hand, right, if you're a Swifty. So, uh, but, you know, that's the big question, though, right, is, is Taylor Swift going to be at the Super Bowl. It's one, of the, one of the emails I got this week was, is Swift going to be there? And I, I was studying Daniel because we've been in the series, and, and actually in Daniel 9.21, you can check me on this, in Daniel 9.21, it says this, that Gabriel, the man I'd seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight. <laughs> came to me in swift flight. And so I was like, Lord, what does this mean? And the Lord revealed to me that Taylor Swift is going to fly and be at the Super Bowl. So you have it. You heard it right here in swift flight, Daniel 9.21. You can, you can look that up. And so, and I was like, okay, Lord, what about, what about the outcome? What about these teams, you know? And, and, and the Lord brought to me, you know, the, the 49ers, if you take 7 times 7, it equals 40, 49, right? And that would be a good thing if you're, if you're a Niners fan, all three of them, because the, the, yeah, that's the Lord's number, right? It's 7, and it's 7 times 7, 49. But then I remember that the 50th year was the year of Jubilee, and so that puts them one short. So that, that, that you know, kind of came to me that there might be one short. And then if you remember what the 49ers are as, as an icon, the 49ers were, they were kind of people that were out painting for, for gold. Okay, it was the gold rush people, okay? You, 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 you remember that? And so, um, and it reminded me of Matthew 6, uh, 19 through 21, where it says, do not store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust destroy. And so that made me think, oh, the 49ers, are, they're going to come up short. And plus, they've been playing pretty bad the last few weeks. So, um, what? Anyway, so then I was like, okay, enough about the 49ers. Yeah, like, Lord, you know, what about my, my Chiefs, you know? And it's like, well, what, what's going to happen, Lord? What's, what's up with the Chiefs? And he brought to me 2 Samuel 1.23. And, and again, you can check this out. So at the end of 2 Samuel 1.23 says, they were swifter than the eagles and stronger than the lions. And I was like, yeah. I was like, but here's the problem. Is that the eagles and the lions didn't make it to the Super Bowl. And, 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 but it does say that they're swifter than the eagles, stronger than the lions. And so then I was like, you know, where, where am I looking? You know, I'm, I'm in the Old Testament on all this stuff. We need to get over in the gospel and into Jesus and the New Testament. So then I was like, okay, what about the Apostle Paul? You know, who would the Apostle Paul pick for the Super Bowl? Who is he a fan of? And then I, I found 1 Timothy 1.15 uh, that says this. This is a faithful saying and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am a chief. And so... The Apostle Paul was a chief, chief fan, and even better than that, in the New Testament, in several different locations, it says that Jesus is called the chief shepherd, also the chief cornerstone, so chiefs win. So I, I brought some, uh, 
This is some paraphernalia, my uh, Mahomes Magic Crunch from High V in Kansas City that someone bought me in my, my uh, Chiefs helmet. So we're, we're gonna keep these back here because I need some room here. Um, but anyway, yeah, so we do hope you have fun with the Super Bowl. Um, we hope, I know there's several small groups that are getting together, growth groups are getting together today. Um, so have fun with all of that. Uh, share, share the camaraderie with your Christian friends and um, just pray for the, for the Niners. They say that Monday after the Super Bowl is the most missed day of work all year. Did you know that? It's because the 49ers fans are sad. So, so no, just kidding. Right, we're, we're in a series here that we've been talking about. How do we stand up to a bowed down world? How do we stand up to the culture in a world that says, hey, bow down, follow me? And, and, and as Christians, we feel like aliens sometimes in this culture, right? I mean, I've used this term throughout this series that sometimes it feels like today you live in the United States of Babylon, not the United States of America. And what, is it, what does it mean? And what, what is, what, how are we to live out our faith in this world? And man, has it not been just gold to read about Daniel? To read about a guy who's taken into exile to a foreign culture and goes into a reconditioning camp for the kings and rulers of Babylon, trying to recondition him, trying to change him. And, he, and what happens with Daniel? He stays consistent through it all. He's still respected by them. In fact, they keep putting him in charge of the kingdom. I mean, is that not craziness? But he never abandons his faith. He never abandons his, his convictions. It reminded me that so many times we can start well, but do we end well? You know, we, we, we start well. It's, it's easy to start in life. But sometimes the legacy is how we finish in life. And here's the truth, is that Daniel's faithfulness had lasting impact. Daniel's faithfulness had a lasting impact. And you're going to see this all over uh, chapter 6 in our story today. In fact, chapter 6 is probably the most famous part of Daniel that everyone knows about. Now, I want to bring us back up to speed to remember where we came from. Daniel, at the beginning of this book, in Daniel chapter 1, was probably, most scholars think, 14 or 15 years old. Okay? Now when you get to chapter 6, he's in his 80s or 90s. He's pushing 80s or 90s. So think about this. He has spent his whole adult life as an exile in Babylon. And he has kept the faith. He's consistent. His reputation is so high that even when kings change or kingdoms change, because now we're with the Medes and Persians, remember? He is the one that is still seen as faithful. It's almost like this. He put on a jersey when he was 14 or 15 years old for Team Jesus. He said, hey, I'm on Team Jesus. I'm on Team God here, and I'm going to wear this jersey all of the days of my life. And he did it. He never abandoned that jersey, even though Babylon said, here, here, this, this might be the winner right here put on our jersey, he said, no, 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 I am on team God all of the way. And the Babylonians, they were never first in his life. God was always first. And if Babylon crossed his convictions, he always remembered, my first loyalty is to God Almighty himself. And his faith even outlasted Babylon, didn't it? Because now the Medes and Persians have taken over Babylon. So he actually, his faith outlasted a, a whole empire, you could say. But Daniel wore his faith. He wore his God 
jersey. He was on Team God all the time. He never, ever took it off. It reminded me of a story talking about jerseys. I had a friend. I went to Dallas Christian College, so I've got a lot of friends in the Dallas metro area. And I had a friend. Uh, he has three boys. And at this time, his boys were 12, 10, and 8. And he had his boys, and they were in line at a movie theater in uh, there in Grapevine, Texas. I don't know if you guys have ever been there, but it's like a mega movie theater. It's like 900 screens and 500,000 square feet. I mean, you know, these, these things are huge. And so he's kind of at this, at this movie theater, and they're in this line to get tickets for a movie, him and his boys. And he looks forward in the line, uh, my, my friend, the dad, he looks forward in the line, and he sees Troy Aikman, which is like so cool, you know? Now, for, so, for some of you that may be a little bit younger, you're like, Troy, Troy Aikman, who is that? Okay. Troy Aikman was a quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys in the 90s when they could win a playoff game, okay? That's just, hey, that's just for my Dallas Cowboys friends, okay? So, um, but anyway, when the Chiefs couldn't win a playoff game. Um, but anyway, but, uh, they, but they saw Troy Aikman. He was so excited. So he's like, boys, you know, and he was explaining because these boys were like, I've heard of him, but I don't know him. Yeah, you should go get his autograph because he's one of the best quarterbacks the franchise has ever had. And, and so you go up there in line, and there was a small crowd around him, and Troy Aikman was, like, signing autographs and, and talking to people and getting selfies. And so he sent the boys up. He said, I'll, I'll keep our place in line. He goes, you run up there and just talk to him, meet him, you know, get him, get him to sign something. They gave him, a, gave him a piece of paper. And so the boys go up, and they're with the crowd for a little bit. All of a sudden, they come back, and his oldest boy, the 12-year-old, is just looking dejected, and they're shaking their heads. He walks up, and he's like, you know, what, what happened? Did, did Troy not talk to you, or did you not get an autograph? Was, it, was he rude? Was he mean? He's like, no, Dad, he was, he was great, and he probably would have signed an autograph, but he points to the little brother. The little eight-year-old brother had on a, you forgot, he had on a 49ers uniform. <laughs> yeah, so he didn't get an autograph that day. Now, let's all be honest. That's just bad parenting, okay? No, you don't put your kids in 49ers uniforms. Um, but anyway, but no, it's like, seriously, it's like, Team Jesus, that he never, ever, ever abandoned God. He said, God is first, most, highest, and best in my life. And he lived his life with consistency all the way. Let's read about that today and what happens in Daniel chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. It says, It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel, the Hebrew guy, <laughs> the exile. Yeah, he's in charge still in the kingdom. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself amongst the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Did you guys catch that? At this point, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to. And they're completely jealous of him. And look at this next part. It says, they could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. He operated, even when he was working for Babylon, in 100% integrity. And it's such a great reputation for it. Now the king's like, I'm going to put you in charge over everything. You're not going to be one of the three administrators. I'm putting you in charge of everything. Thing. Look at verse 5. Finally, these men said, We will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. And so these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, May King Darius live forever. Remember that line. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, 
and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. So there was this rule that for the Medes and Persians that if the king put an edict out, he could not pull it back. Like it was, it was, that was just the way it was going to be. There's no repealing it. Verse 10. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Now remember, that's where he came from when he was 14 years old. That's, that's the homeland. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the lion's den? And the king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. And then they said to the king, well, Daniel, who's one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. And when the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. And the king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. Does that sound like any other part in the Bible? Um, And the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. And then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him. And he could not sleep. He was so distraught over Daniel and losing Daniel. Verse 19. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and he hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? And look how he responds. Look how Daniel responds. Daniel answered, may the king live forever. You remember that from earlier? It's almost like he's taunting. I think he's taunting a little bit. Might get a penalty there. You know. In uh, verse 22, my God sent his angel and he shut the mouth of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in His God. There's so much we can learn about our faith this morning. And let's begin with this. Faith is often tested for integrity. Faith is often tested for integrity. If you have your faith in God, I'm betting someday you are going to get a test of your faith. And as we've read this book, you've seen over and over and over again that Daniel is tested. 
When we're tested, it shows whether that faith is authentic and real or not. You might be tested in small ways, like the cashier that didn't give you the right amount of change and you need to run back and give them the right amount of change. You might have your faith tested in, in morals and values. You might have your faith tested by the culture, but it will be tested to see if it's authentic and genuine, and you will stand a test of integrity. Daniel had absolute integrity over his whole life. There's nothing in the book of Daniel that says or shows us otherwise. In fact, the proof is in the fact that every time there's a king, and even when there is a new king, they love Daniel and they want to do what? Put the foreign exile in charge of my kingdom. Why do you think Daniel gets, gets that? It's because he's faithful to God and because he operates in absolute integrity. He served Babylon well in the name of the Lord, his God. And so even those people keep wanting to use him because he operates in such integrity. Faith is often tested for integrity. The second thing this morning, faith is personal, but it is not private. Faith is personal, but it is not private. Some Christians want to have a personal faith, and faith is personal. It's very personal. Absolutely. But it's not to be hidden under a bowl, hide it under a bush. It's to be on display for others to see it is not private. Real faith affects and shapes every part of your life and how it is lived out in front of others. A private, quiet faith is often an excuse for not putting faith into action, for not having your faith affect every area of your life where everything intersects. But you're the same person here Sunday morning sitting in church as you are when you go to work tomorrow at 8 or 8.30 a.m., and then you, you absolutely operate in total integrity when you do so. In fact, there's so much written about this in the book of James, chapter 2. The writer in James, in several verses in chapter 2, he talks about how uh, you show me your faith by your words. I'll show you my faith by what I do, by my deeds, by my works, by how I live my life. And he says, hey, this is an actionable step that we have, is to live out this faith, to put it into action. He even, toward the end of chapter 2, kind of questions. He's like, he's like is, is faith that has no works and no deeds to, 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 to show for itself, can that faith save you? I mean, he's questioning whether you have true faith if you don't have any deeds to show that you are trusting God with your life. And it got me thinking about Daniel because so many times in our text in Daniel, it's in, it's in the uh, context of the marketplace, right? It's in the context of our jobs and when we're out in the world and when we're at work, at a job, doing what we should be doing, right? As Christians, operating in integrity, doing what we're asked to do by our boss, not doing what we're not supposed to be doing at work. I think the marketplace is one of the best mission fields for us to exemplify Christ to our culture. And yet, so many Christians might fall short. Maybe it's because you're not doing what your manager is asking you to do. Or that you're doing things that you know aren't right. You're not operating in absolute integrity. Sometimes, and statistically, they say the way that's broken most in American workplace today is time. Showing up late, cutting out early, taking the long lunch, or just being unproductive during work hours when 
The workplace expects you to do what? Work. And yet you look at Daniel and he has operated for all these years, now in his probably in his 80s. From the time he was 14 to his, he's consistent. He's consistent all the way through. He lives in life in such a way it's consistent and it affects the people around him. And his witness and his testimony is so strong because he walked with the Lord every day in consistency. And that will affect anyone's kingdom effectiveness if you want to work on mission with God and exercise the great commission mission that we're all called to. There's a story about uh, uh, Gerald Ford, President Gerald Ford. In 1974, he entered a pro-am golf tournament with a man by the name of Billy Graham. Billy Graham and and Gerald Ford became friends. I think there's a a picture we have of them at the golf tournament together. And the pro-am was played like this, just like it sounds, pro-am, your pros and amateurs, is that... The president, Gerald Ford, and Billy Graham were assigned to professional golfers on their team. So they go through the tournament, and they play, and they get to the very end, and they did okay. They finished in the, in the middle somewhere, and they're walking off the course, and, and a reporter and, and a couple of other pros are going to one of the pros that was with their team and asked him, you know, say, how was it you know, on the golf course today, and how was it playing with the president and with Billy Graham? And the guy just went off. Like, flew off the handle. Like, it was terrible. I hated it. You know, every point of it. And they're like, well, really, what happened? It's like, that Billy, that Billy Graham is just, man, he's just, he's just a jerk. And it was like, wow, we call him Billy Graham. I mean, what happened here? And he's just going off. He goes over and he grabs one of those buckets of balls, takes it to the driving range, just starts waxing golf balls, this pro. And so one of his friends saw and heard and overheard, and he you know, gave him a few minutes, waxing the balls. He walks over. He's hoping he's chilled out a little bit. He's like, hey, man. He's like, what happened? He's like, did Billy Graham let you have it? He, uh, did, did he preach to you the whole time? Like, was Billy Graham, like, telling you, man, you're going to hell? Is that what happened? He's like, he kind of stopped and kind of rolled his head and his neck back. It's like, no, not, not really. He's like, that man... He played golf exactly like he says he lives his life. He didn't cuss, not even once, even when he shanked balls. He was kind and encouraging the whole time. I mean, he played golf like I imagine a Christian would play golf. He said, well, why why that make you so mad? I mean, if he was that kind of person, he said, oh, he played golf with authenticity and integrity, clean language, just like he lives his life. But just being around him really convicted me, and I don't want to be convicted when I'm playing golf. (laughs) I wonder if some of Daniel's coworkers felt the same way. That to be around this man that authentically lived out a God-filled life, a God-filled testimony, and never took off his God jersey. He was on Team God the whole time. I wonder if it impacted them. Sometimes you don't have to preach at people in the marketplace to get them to see Jesus in you. Sometimes you you just live out your faith. How about some clean language and some clean living? How about not saying, well, I come to... Sunday, and I, I check that church attendance box, but the language I use on Monday at 8.30 when I'm rolling to work is a little different than... But you see that Daniel, 
His, face, his faith was personal, but it wasn't private. It was on display for everyone to see. Third thing, Daniel's spiritual walk didn't change when the pressure was on. It didn't change when the pressure was on. Look at, look at verse 10. He gets the news of the edict, and remember what he does. He goes, and he goes to pray. And you're thinking, oh, he, he probably didn't do that. I mean, you know, now I heard the bad news, so i got to go pray, right? You know? But look what it says at the end of verse 10. It says, three times a day he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. The first thing that jumped out at me there is he's giving thanks to God. For what? Thanks that I might get thrown in a lion's den if I get caught praying to you? No, it was just, it was part of his, it was part of his habit. It was part of his spiritual walk. He didn't just pray to God when he wanted circumstances to change. He prayed to God with a thankful heart for who God is and what God had done in his life and what God means to him his whole life. It didn't matter what the situation was. But then don't miss the end of verse 10, just as he had done before. If you read that in the New Living Translation, it says, as usual. This was his habit. This was his pattern. He was going to go pray. He was going to do it with a thankful and a grateful heart. He didn't just start praying because there was a crisis. None of us would do that, right? Just, just pray when there's a crisis. Just when we need something. Vending machine God. Hey, God, give me this. I want that. Bless me, Lord, I pray. Bless me, bless me, bless me. Help me, help me, help me. No, this was a man who had a relationship with God that was nurtured in the day-to-day -day life. His soul was prepared for a time of crisis that he'd already been prayed up for. Prayer was his first priority, not his last resort. It got me thinking, if tomorrow you got the news of that medical diagnosis that no one wants, what would your first emotional response be? If you showed up to work tomorrow and they said, hey, your services are no longer needed, please clean out your stuff, thank you, and goodbye. What would your first emotional response in that moment be? Or if you go home today and you find out, I've got a pipe that broke and it flooded my whole house. What is your first emotional response going to be? Is it flying out cuss words and frustrations and cursing at God? Or is it built on a life of faith and integrity that even when the pressure's on, I don't change because I walk with the Lord. The theologian Kyle Bergdahl one time put it this way to me. He said, when your upside goes downside, your inside comes outside. Think about that. When your upside goes downside, what's inside comes outside. What do you have in your heart? Where is your faith Number four, Daniel's faith was built on the word of God. Daniel's faith was built on the word of God. You're like, what? Wait a second, this is Daniel in the middle of the Old Testament. How much scripture did they have by this point? Well, I think they had enough. If you're in Daniel and you roll over to Daniel chapter 9, verses 2 and 3, listen to what it says about Daniel here. In Daniel 9, 2 and 3, it says, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures... According to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. 
So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition and fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. Do you understand what was happening here? When they were exiled and Jerusalem was destroyed, the prophet Jeremiah comes along and says, that's going to last for 70 years. Let's see, he's 14 when he goes to exile-ish. He's 84-ish now. 84 minus 14 is 70. How did, how did he know this? How did he know to be praying about this? Why was it on the forefront of his mind? It's because of what little scripture he had. He was a man of the word. What advantage do we have on Daniel that we have the whole of scripture, including the Messiah, the Son of God? And Daniel was a man, it says there, he saw in the scriptures from the prophet Jeremiah what was to come. You see, his hope was in God and in his word, and he knew God doesn't change, his word is truth, and I will stand on that word. That helped him not bow, that helped him not bow down in the bowed down world. His hope was not in any kingdom of man, in any kingdom of this earth. His hope was in the kingdom of God. It was always going to be God's plan, God's way, God's timing. And it's interesting. It's interesting to me of how the pagans handle themselves. Did you look at verse 18 in our text? Do you remember? It says, The king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating, without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. I always wonder, what was Daniel doing all night with the lions? I wonder if he was taking a nap. <laughs> After he got down there and he realized the angel of the Lord had shut the lion's mouth, he was like, hmm, tired. And it's like 2 a.m., I'm going to sleep. I wonder if Daniel slept better in the lion's den than the king did in the palace. Because in our text it says the king couldn't sleep. Couldn't handle it. But Daniel's faith was in God, built on the word of God. Number five. Genuine faith lets God handle the outcomes. A genuine faith lets God handle the outcomes. When you do what is right, you just leave the results to God. You do the next right thing, you do what God is calling you to do, and you leave the results to God. You let him handle the outcomes. We don't have control over the outcomes. I think it's a little bit sinful and presumptuous of us to think that we have something to do with the outcomes. Let's read the rest of the story. We stopped at verse 23 of chapter 6. Let's read the rest of the chapter, the next five verses. Verse 24, the king's command. Now, remember what just happened. The king was overjoyed, gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. Daniel was lifted out of the den. He had no wound found on him because he trusted in the Lord his God. Now, verse 24, at the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all of their bones. It's funny. People try to explain away scripture sometimes. Somebody I'd, I'd read online was like, oh, you know, lions only feed at certain times of the day. And it could have been when Daniel was lowered into the lion's den, the lions weren't hungry. And I thought, ha ha, verse 24. Did you not read the last part? Before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed them because they're just so ravenous and hungry. Anyway, verse 25. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and the peoples of every language in all of the earth, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. Remember, this can't be repealed. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. 
He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. And then, last part of chapter 6. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. In the end, he won again because he remained faithful to God. Something that really bothered me while I was closing out this chapter was in verse 24. Did you catch it? All the guys that were plotting against Daniel get thrown to the lions. But there's something that happened after that. It says, along with their wives and children. It kind of made me sad. Why, you know, innocent people. But it was a good reminder to me. You know, sometimes we think we sin and it only affects us. But sin and rebellion oftentimes, in fact, I would say most of the time, it affects innocent people. And that's why I want to say to all the adults in the room, the decisions that you're making will affect your children and possibly your grandchildren. So choose wisely to walk with the Lord. Because sometimes the innocent people end up in the lion's den, even though they had nothing to do with your sin. And I want you to know, too, it sounds really cruel, but the Bible doesn't prescribe this, doesn't say this is what you're supposed to do. This wasn't a judgment of God on them. It was just described this way. But I also want you to lose sight of the good ending again. At the end of every chapter, it seems like it's a good ending. Happy ending for Daniel, right? It's because of God, because he walked with the Lord. Daniel prospered, even in Babylon. So I want to end with this. Ask yourself, what are the changes I'm going to make to build my character and resolve so that when I find myself in adversity, I can stand up in a bowed down world? You know, it says in the text that uh, Daniel was thrown into this pit. This, this, maybe there's a cave, maybe it's like a, a hole in the ground, but he was thrown into this pit. And I, I was looking and doing some research this week on, you know, being in the pit. You know, remember they rolled that, they rolled that rock in front of it and sealed it so that no human could intervene. No one's going to go in there and rescue Daniel or go tape the lion's mouth shut with duct tape or anything like that, tranquilize them or anything like that. And it's like, you know, sometimes we need help when we're in a pit, and I read this thing about uh, people that come by when someone is in a pit. There was a man who fell into a pit in life. And a person that was subjective came by and said, I really feel you down there. And then there was a person who was objective. And he said, well, it's logical that it was just a matter of time before you found yourself in a pit. Then a philosophical person came by and said, you only think you're in a pit. So you are. The Pharisee came by and said, hey, only bad people fall into a pit. Mathematician came by and was calculating how he fell in the pit. Then a news reporter came by and wanted to do an exclusive story on the full pit experience. A charismatic came by and said, just declare that you're not in the pit. A realist came by and said, well, now that's a pit. Geologists came by and said, you need to appreciate the rock strata in your pit. Then the county assessor came because, you know, the assessor's always coming. <laughs> He wanted to make sure that he'd paid his taxes on the pit. Then the county inspector came and said, hey, did you pull a permit for that pit? A passive person 
came by and they just avoided the subject of the pit altogether. Um, then there was the self-pitied person that came by and said, you haven't seen anything until you come see my pit. The optimist came by and said, hey, the pit could be worse. And the pessimist came by and said, man, this is the worst. And then Jesus came by. He saw the man in the pit and he lowered himself down into the pit. And he picked up the man, put him on his shoulder, and he carried him out of the pit. You see, everything that humanity and the world could offer in the pit was never enough. But Jesus is always enough. The Son of God is always enough for everything. Now, when you read Daniel for the last six weeks, and I, I hope you did, I hope you got into this and you were reading the Bible at home and reading these chapters. Did it ever come out to you that there's a lot of foreshadowing of Jesus in the book of Daniel? Like there's all these parallels. Like you're reading something, you're like, huh, that's kind of like Jesus. Huh, that, that kind of reminds me of Jesus. Huh, is there something in the New Testament about that? Because just like Daniel, catch this, men conspired against Jesus because of who he was. Just like Daniel, traps were set for Jesus. And just like Daniel, Jesus was also falsely accused by his enemies. Just like Daniel, Jesus was brought in front of a ruler, his name was Pontius Pilate, who tried to free him, but he could not. And just like Daniel, Jesus was condemned to die a very brutal and violent death. Just like Daniel, Jesus was put in a cave, it was sealed with a rock, so no human could intervene. And just like Daniel, Jesus walked out of that cave alive. You know, the only difference between Jesus and Daniel is that Daniel didn't die, but Jesus did. Jesus chose to die to be a sacrifice for you and for me and to pay a debt on our sin that we could never pay ourselves. And Daniel is a picture of us and that we stand condemned and face judgment, but Jesus paid the price to set us free. And that's why Jesus is better than Daniel in every way. So I want you to do this as we close the series today. I want you to close your eyes right now. I want you to just block out any distractions. Just close your eyes right now. And I want to ask you just a couple of questions. I want you to think about where you are in your relationship with God right now. And I want you to think about this series and reflect back and think, what is the thing that you found yourself talking about, thinking about, praying about, talking to someone about? What is that that was in your mind, in your heart this series? What was that area that you felt like you needed to grow in? What is it, perhaps, that you've been running from in regards to God. Because you're scared to go all in. What is God asking you to do or to change or to trust him for? And are you willing to put on the jersey of God's team and to wear it everywhere? To be characterized as a life of faithfulness for God? 